Thank you, Anne, for that ministry in music. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely foundational to our Christian faith. If Christ is not risen, the Word of God says we are of all people most miserable. If Christ is not risen, our faith is in vain. Our faith is based on a reality. The reality is the resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ that demonstrates that our sins are forgiven and as a result we enjoy peace with God. Today we looked at a passage that depicts for us how Mary came to believe in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. She actually had the privilege and joy of seeing the resurrected Lord. This morning's outline is simple. We want to look at Mary's distress, Mary's discovery, and Mary's dispatch, and lessons that we can learn from this passage. So we begin by looking at Mary's distress. If you have not turned there, I invite you to open your Bible to John chapter 20, verse 11. And in these opening verses, we certainly see that Mary is very distressed. The extent of her distress is a deep-seated grief. If you look at verse 11, it says that Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. Weeping. There are a number of different Greek words to depict crying or weeping. Uh, We sometimes think of tears welling up in our, in our eyes. Uh, sometimes it affects our, our voice. Uh, we speak and we begin to, to, to crack as we, as we speak. We're overcome with emotion. But this word that is used for weeping is probably most akin to the word that we would use to wail. Uh, she saw Utterances. This is the kind of weeping that your, your, your chest convulses. You know, that, that is, it, it's more than just tears that are streaming down the face. It's that, <laughs> it's that, that, that vibrant, awful weeping that she was experiencing outside the tomb. Then we see the, the obsession of her grief. She had a morbid preoccupation with the tomb. Notice in verse 11, it says, she was standing outside the tomb. The idea there is that for a period of time, she'd been standing at the tomb. Now realize and remember that Mary had been at the tomb already earlier that morning. She had found out that the the body was not there. And she went to tell Peter and John that somebody had taken that body that was no longer there. Well, after she told Peter and John, she returned to the, to, the, to the tomb, probably looking for some clues as to where Jesus was taken. But she didn't have any clues. She didn't know who took the body. She didn't know where he could be. If you look at verse 13, 
The angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. That's the, the cause for her distress. She didn't know where they took Jesus. So she's just standing outside the tomb, wailing. Mary could not leave. She was transfixed at the tomb. You know, when we misplace things, a lot of times we go back to the place where we last saw it. And we look for it. She kept looking for the body of Jesus, though it wasn't there. And the more she looked, the more distressed she became. And the more distressed she became, the more she wasn't ready to leave. You know, I've been with people in stressful situations in the hospital. They don't want to leave. They don't want to go anywhere else. They don't want to do anything else. They are centered upon this problem, this anxiety, this grief. And so she was, transfixed, standing outside the tomb. There's an interesting word in verse 10. It's in the uh, uh, verse 10 it says so the disciples went away again to their own homes and then verse 11 but Mary was standing outside the sepulcher or tomb there, there's, there's a, there is a conjunction that speaks of a difference but there's a contrast and the contrast is that Peter and John went to their homes but she stood at the sepulcher. I think it's reasonable to ask the question, if you first see this account, is why in the world didn't Peter and John tell Mary about what they had seen and what conclusion it had, it had been reached? Well, I think it's reasonable to assume from the text that Mary arrives at some time after Peter and John have already left. One reason for that assumption is found in verse 12. And that is, when she looked in the tomb, behold, two angels in white were sitting. Those angels weren't there when Peter and John were there. Peter and John went into the tomb. They were able to examine the tomb. They saw the linen clothes. There were no angels. It was empty. But when Mary shows up, now there are two angels there. That shows some passing of time. Therefore, I think that probably what happened is Peter and John see that the tomb is empty and they leave. But John leaves believing that Jesus is risen from the dead. Sometime later, Mary comes back to the tomb and she stands there transfixed. The angels are presumably sent to help Mary in her distress. The presence of the angels should demonstrate that God is at work. Verse 12, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the hand and one at the left. That appears to be the way in which she knew that these were angels. Other accounts say they glistened. They glistened. They, they, were, they were pretty awesome. And it was pretty apparent that these were not just two ordinary human beings, but these, in fact, were angels. And the angels asked Mary a question. Verse 13, they said unto her, Woman, why are you weeping? They said that not to elicit information. It's not like they're bewildered, but rather to make her stop and think. Why are you weeping? 
Why are you weeping? And she gives a straightforward account. Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Mary's answer reveals her personal identification with Jesus. She doesn't simply say they've taken away Jesus or they've taken away the Lord. She says they've taken away my Lord. And that's why she's so distressed. Because she has a personal relationship to Jesus. She cares about Jesus. And interestingly enough, though she thinks he's dead, she cares about his body. She wants to be near him. Even if it means a dead body. She wants to be near that dead body. Application. Here we see how devotion without understanding leads to unnecessary sorrow. There is absolutely no question about Mary's committedness to Jesus. We see it in her words when she refers to him as my Lord. But we see it in her actions. She rises up very early in the morning in order to go to that tomb on the first time. She does so in order to anoint that body with spices. But the body's not there. She runs and tells Peter and John that someone has taken that body away. They come to the tomb. She comes back again later, stands transfixed. No question that she's devoted to Jesus. But she has these unnecessary tears. There really is no reason to weep, but she doesn't know that. She doesn't know that. She wasn't expecting to see Jesus. I can only wonder how often it is that we shed very unnecessary tears out of an inability to see God at work. So many things that we don't understand that cause us to worry, to fret, to be distressed, to be forlorn, discouraged. We don't see God at work even when we have his promises. Even when we know that his care is faithful and true. Uh, She weeps. She weeps. She weeps unnecessarily. Same with us. Mary weeps because she focuses on what appears to be the gloomy circumstances and fails to heed the message of the glorious promises. Jesus had said that he was going to rise. We looked at that last week. Mary knew that Jesus said, I'm going to rise from the dead. But she didn't focus on that. She focused on an empty tomb. And in that empty tomb, she didn't even focus on the grave clothes that Peter and John focused on. That led them, at least John, to place faith in the resurrected Lord. She didn't see that. And she wasn't even taken aback by these angels that are sitting there. She seems blind and pervious to all of that because she's overcome with grief. We need to realize that when we are are overcome with grief, so often we're blind to God's goodness. We're blinded to his promises. We can't see afar off. We get microscopic and myopic in our, our view of life and our circumstances. All we can see is our need. And that's where Mary is at. So let's look at Mary's discovery. Mary's discovery is in parts, and it moves from the lesser to the greater. She discovers that Jesus is alive. At first, Mary does not recognize the risen Jesus, verse 14. When she had said this, 
that is to the angels that uh, they have taken away her Lord. And they don't know where she doesn't know where they have laid him. Uh, verse 14, when she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. So, of course, commentators ask the question, why didn't she know that it was Jesus? Um, one thing that we do know from the resurrected appearances is that the same body that was in the grave is the body out of the grave. Uh, one of the best ways to see that, of course, is that Jesus invites uh, Thomas to put his hand in the nail prints in his hands and the wounded inside. Jesus still bore those marks in his resurrected body. Jesus, in his resurrected body, looked like Jesus before the resurrection. So, why didn't she recognize him? We find out on the account, on the road to Emmaus, that when Jesus talked to his disciples, there it says that their eyes were holded or shut, so they couldn't recognize Jesus. There's nothing in the text that seems to illustrate that. I would submit to you it's simply because she wasn't expecting to see Jesus. It was not in the realm of her thinking. It was not even on the radar screen. There also seems to be a hint that she didn't look at him fully, for we find out in the next verse that she turned herself again. I think she probably glanced over her shoulder. After all, she's looking in a, a tomb and sees two angels sitting there in white. Guess where your focus would be? My focus, I think. If somebody started talking from me behind, I think I'd still be looking pretty much uh, at these angels. And so the, the aspect is she glances over her shoulder and thinks she's talking to a gardener. But then something wonderful happens. Verse 15, Jesus said to her woman, Why are you weeping? Same thing that the angels said. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you laid him and I will take him away. She doesn't come to the point of recognizing Jesus yet, but she will. And notice what brings Mary to the point of recognizing Jesus. Here we're to see the grace of God and the activity of Jesus. Verse 15. Jesus at first addresses Mary as woman. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Again, the same thing that the angel said. But then, Jesus calls her name. Jesus calls her name. Look at the next verse. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. It's when he calls her name. How did he know her name? It's Mary. But it was more than just that he knew her name. It's the way that he said her name. And it's the power that he said in calling her by name. It's not a stretch. When we read in John chapter 10 verse 3. The sheep hears his voice. And he calls his own by name. The same way in which Jesus initially created faith in Mary is the way that now he develops and increases that faith in Mary. It's the activity of Jesus. It's what Jesus does. He calls her by name. And as being a part of his sheep, she hears his voice. 
she hears his voice. And she says, Rabboni, which means teacher. Teacher. Now, Jesus, now Mary discovers the significance of Jesus being alive. Verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. One of the questions that is often raised in this text is, Why can't Mary touch Jesus? And Thomas is invited to place his fingers in the nail prints of Jesus' hands and wounds in Jesus' side. Look at John 20, verse 27. Then he said, that is Jesus to Thomas, reach here your finger, see my hands, reach here your hand, put it into my side, and be not unbelieving, but believing. In Matthew 28, verse 9, here Jesus is risen. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. There's no question that time and time again, in the resurrection appearances, Jesus is handled and touched. One of the things to answer the question, is a translation issue. What does Jesus literally say? If you have a King James, it says, touch me not. If you have an NIV, it says, do not hold on to me. If you have a New American Standard, it says, stop clinging to me. Won't mean much to most of you, but it's a present middle imperative. Which means not to, to start doing something, but rather to stop doing something you already are. Uh, she's clinging on to Jesus. Jesus said, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Now, why is that significant? Well, first of all, those people that have followed the translation that says, uh, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, have erred in their understanding of defilement. The idea in that context is, that the reason that you can't touch Jesus is he has not yet ascended to the Father and you're going to make me impure. Well, that strains at a number of things. First of all, the scripture teaches it's not that which is without that brings uh, defilement, but it's that which is from within. Uh, the second issue is why is it not defiling after he goes to heaven as opposed to before he goes to heaven. He's still going to heaven. Uh, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And, but here is what is a more important issue. And that is that we need to wrestle with when did the ascension actually take place. The concern was not that he would somehow become contaminated or defiled, and thus unacceptable to the Father. To do away with this supposed conflict of Jesus not being able to be touched by human hands before he ascends to the Father, and seeing Jesus touched by other women and Thomas, have proposed that Jesus' ascension takes place that day. But that's a real problem. The ascension doesn't take place that day. Jesus made 11 resurrection appearances. Eleven resurrection appearances. As long as those resurrection appearances continued, the disciples might expect Jesus to show up any moment. 
You see, on 11 different times, Jesus just shows up. Why shouldn't we expect Jesus to just show up today? Why wouldn't the disciples just expect Jesus to continue to show up in their lifetime? Turn with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 7. The last resurrection appearance of Jesus. Acts 1, 7. He said to them, that is his disciples, he is Jesus. Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the time or epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's an answer to the question, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them and said also, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. That's the ascension. And Jesus has ascended into heaven. Thus, the actual ascension is still a bit in the offing. The point of Jesus' words is that Mary is to have a different relationship to Jesus after the resurrection than she had before the resurrection. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to him, to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni. Rabboni which is a form of rabbi. That's why it uh, translates that for us and tells us that it is teacher. Earlier, she had referred to Jesus as Lord, verse 13, because they have taken away my Lord. Verse 18, when she reaches the disciples, she refers to him as Lord again. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. But here, she refers to him as teacher. But this beloved relationship that she enjoyed to Jesus as teacher wasn't going to continue on. He wasn't going to be the teacher. He wasn't going to be the instructor. They weren't going to be the disciples in that way. So, if you look at verse 17, the NIV says, Jesus said, do not Hold on to me. And if you have an NIV, verse 18, it says, instead. Instead. Instead of holding on to me, go and, and, and tell the others. Mary cannot just keep Jesus here. He cannot stay. Both Jesus and Mary have other things to do. Jesus is to ascend. She is to get the word out about the resurrected Lord Jesus. And in heaven, he intercedes now uh, for us, making intercession for us. He ever lives to make intercession for us in heaven. Uh, he's not going to be that, that teacher, but that's what she wants. But that's not what's going to happen. So let's, let's look at Mary's dispatch. Look what Jesus says, verse 17. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I stand, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your Father, and your God. 
I ascend to my Father, your Father, my God, and your God. As we look at this passage, I think that the most notable thing is most easily obscured and missed. And the most notable thing is found in verse 17. And if you're one that marks your Bibles, I encourage you to do so. And circle the words, my brethren. Go to my brethren and say to them. Up until this point, Jesus has never referred to the disciples as his brothers. The one exception could be when uh, Jesus is ministering. And they come and tell him that Mary and his brothers are outside. And he says... And he points to the crowd and he says, these are my mother, these are my brethren. But it's not used in this sense. Jesus never refers to the disciples as brothers. He refers to them as disciples. He refers to them as servants. And then in John chapter 15, they get a unique relationship and refers to them as friends. This is the words of John 15. Greater love has no one than this, the one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I have commanded you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slaves do not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. I now call you friends because you have this intimate personal relationship with me. You're not a slave anymore. The master doesn't tell his slave everything. But people who have friends confide in them. They tell them secrets. They tell their friends things that they don't tell anybody else. And so they move from disciples to slaves to friends. In this passage, they move to be calling brothers. My brothers, because of the resurrection, they enjoy an entirely new relationship to Jesus. One of his brothers, listen to the words of Hebrews. But we do see him, that is Jesus, who is made for a little while lower than the angels. Namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is written... For him, for whom all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of our salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. They are all from one Father. Therefore, he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Look at verse 17 of John 20. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. I'm going to my Father so that you can go to my Father. I'm going to my God so that you can go to my God. You are now my brothers. She was longing for a relationship to Jesus. She was holding on to him and saying, Teacher, teacher, I want you to teach me. 
I want to have that intimate relationship that I had with you in the past. I want to be able to walk with you and talk with you and weep at your feet. Jesus said, go to my brothers and tell them, I'm ascending to heaven, to your God and my God, your Father and my Father. You've got a better relationship to Jesus now because of the resurrection than you've ever had before. It's a victorious word of acceptance. On the cross, Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now he says, I ascend to my Father. And not just my Father, your Father. Not just my God, your God. As we look at this passage, let's just think about a few things in closing. First, Jesus does not rebuke Mary for her lack of faith. Jesus does not rebuke Mary for her lack of faith. In fact, he works to bring Mary to a greater faith. Jesus accommodates her lack of faith. Jesus does not reward her faith. He instills faith. The same truth that the God who is at work to bring us to faith initially is the same God who is at work to complete that faith in us. That's what Philippians says. He who has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. One of the very striking things about this passage that cannot be missed is the activity of Jesus. The activity of God in each of these individual lives. All of a sudden, Jesus is going to appear to the disciples in the next section. Then Jesus appears to Thomas and says, stretch forth your hands. These are not a reward for those that are seeking him. It is the grace of God in instilling greater faith. Sometimes we beat ourselves up over our lack of faith, over our doubts, over our grief. Sometimes we lay in bed at night and we know we shouldn't worry. But guess what we do? We worry. We're anxious. We lament. We mourn. We have tears. And every once in a while we find a brother or sister in the Lord is not really gracious, that kind of rebukes us, tells us we shouldn't feel that way. Or our own conscience rebukes us and tells us that we shouldn't feel that way. But what Jesus does is uses that circumstance to increase our faith, to develop our faith. To mature our faith. And so, we're told in the Word of God in the book of James, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and sufferings. Why? Because God is going to work. God is going to teach us. 
God is going to use this circumstance in our life to create even a greater, deeper, more mature, lasting faith. But we learn from this passage that we can have grief when we should have joy. We can have grief when we should have joy. We, we understand that concept. Any person that's a believer knows that conflict, that, that struggle that exists when you attend the funeral service. And even the scripture knows that. It says that we sorrow not as those who have no hope. So we have a hope. We have a belief. We have a trust in the resurrection. We believe that we're going to be in God's presence. That's a, a source of comfort. At the same time, we have a sense of loss. We have sorrow. We have weeping. We know that tension of one at the same time knowing tears and knowing comfort. We need to experience more of God's comfort. I think we need to make a part of our prayers constantly. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I really do believe. But yet I really do have doubts. I can't say enough. I said it last week. I can't say it enough. Belief is not an all or nothing proposition. It's not either you have faith or you don't have faith. It's a question of how much faith do we have? Lord, increase our faith. Help us to have more faith. Help us to have deeper faith. Help us to have greater faith. The way to deal with doubts is not to try to hide them. It's to take them to God. God, I have this doubt. I have this nagging concern. I have this deep-seated unrest in my soul. Teach me. Reveal yourself to me. Even as the disciples said, increase our faith. And when we do, this is what we can expect to happen. First, bewilderment turns to understanding. Bewilderment turns to understanding. There are so many things in God's word that we don't understand. But as he increases our faith, it makes more and more sense. So many of these things in life's circumstances we don't understand. But it makes more and more sense. You know, uh, speaking personally, as I think about this situation with Matt and Suki, and I tried to help to bring them comfort and joy. As you look about, back on it, you can just see how God is at work. God brought them home, even in a situation that they thought was quite different. And now you can see more and more of God's hand at work. I don't know what he's going to do. I, don't, I can't guarantee that these, these babies are going to live and, and be fine. But I have the anticipation. It just seems odd to me that God would do so much and then stop. So, I feel pretty good about it. I hope, I hope, if these babies die, I'll still feel good about God. He still will have been faithful. He still will have been loving. He still would have been just. I won't understand it. I didn't understand they're leaving Tanzania. Now I do. 
If that were to happen, someday I'll understand that too. Someday I'll be able to explain what God is doing. By faith. Bewilderment turns to understanding. By faith, weeping turns to joy. By faith, devotion manifests itself in service. No longer just standing outside a tomb, but now she leaves that tomb. There's no reason to be standing there any longer. She hastens. That's behind her. It's like Philippians. Those things which are in the past, you just leave them when you come to know the resurrected Lord. Now there are things that are much more important. And the relationship to Jesus turns from being teacher to brother. An intimate, personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Listen to the words of the book of Revelation. Because Jesus is risen. Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among them. And he shall dwell among them. And he shall be, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be among them. With this result. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things that passed away. When Jesus Christ returns, when he establishes his kingdom, when he creates the new heaven and new earth, there just won't be any tears. There won't be any more dying, no death, no sin, no misery. We live in a longing for that day. We groan waiting for that day. But I hope by faith we can have a confident anticipation of that day and view the circumstances of this life in perspective. Whatever happens to me now will be righted in the day to come. Whatever grief and sorrow I know now will be turned to joy and gladness in the day to come. May we be people of faith. Jesus has risen from the dead. He ascends to the Father, to your God and my God, to your Father, and my Father, so that we can enjoy all the benefits of his death and resurrection. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask...